Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the All Stats Aren't We review of the Villa game and preview of the Everton game. I'm Darren Driver and I'm here with John McKenzie and the permanently hungover Oliver Reed of All Stats Aren't We, picture of vodka and orange in hand, it's Tom Alderson. Tom, how big's the hangover today, my friend? I'm completely fine. I've just, what? Yeah, I haven't drunk since Tuesday. <laughs> every, every time I'm on a podcast with you, it seems like you can't complaining about your hangover. So I just wondered if we needed to stage some sort of intervention, but it seems like you've done it yourself. So we'll uh, we'll leave it there. Thanks, John. How you doing, mate? Yeah, doing well. I'm enjoying Tom Alderson's lilac on the show. There, that's a, mm-hmm. a lovely testament to to Leeds United. But yeah, I'm doing all right. How are you? Yeah, good. Thanks, Tom. Have you got a number on the back of your shirt? No, I never get numbers on the back of shirt because I. I'll tell you why. Because my auntie's a City fan, uh, bought me a Man City shirt when I was younger, um, and it had, it had Adam Johnson on the back. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I thought best, like since then, I'm like it's best just not to commit yourself to a player in case it goes wrong in a couple of years' time. <laughs> well, that was an unexpected turn, which I really enjoyed. Excellent, thank you. Um, Okay, let's all compose ourselves and start to move on to some of the content that we've got going on here. So um, there was an interesting article in The Telegraph today talking about three managers that Leeds are considering if Bielsa should leave at the end of the season. And they mentioned uh, Jesse March, Ernesto Valverde and Carlos Corberan. And I guess we can all have views about the individual merits of those coaches and stuff. And I I think that's probably a discussion for another day. But there was a question that I wanted to ask. I'm going to come to you with this, John, uh, is why these three people and why now? In terms of the three managers, I mean, Jesse Marsh is an obvious fit insofar as he is uh, the former manager of RB Salzburg. He has been, amongst others, the former manager of Brendan Aronson, (laughs) uh, make it that way you will. But Victor Orta does seem to have a, a thing for the Red Bull model. Uh, obviously, the Red Bull had this um, very high pressing, intense approach as their as their sort of game model that they were going to work to. Um, interestingly, Jesse Marsh was obviously someone who went through that um, system, starting at uh, the the Red Bulls in in New York. 
3 Salzburg 2 RB Leipzig. But RB Leipzig had a weird sort of tweak during the Julian Nagelsmann era where they they shifted a little bit away from being a sort of counter-pressing, high-intensity team to being more of a structured possession uh, ball-playing team. Um, They then went to Jesse Marsh and it went very wrong. And they've recently brought in Domenico Tedesco, who is... Again, someone who's probably more in the Julian Nagelsmann um, mold. So that's that's an interesting concept for me, just insofar as the the I, I guess it suggests that um, if you're really wanting to challenge at the top of tables, then this sort of high intensity counter attacking football might not be the the way to go. Um, that doesn't mean to say that we shouldn't pursue that approach. And Jesse, if you're going to do that, Jesse Marsh is a is probably a, a pretty good like for like w- with respect to Marcelo Bielsa. So that one makes a lot of sense. Carlos Corbran is obviously um, former under 23s coach. So that makes sense to a certain extent as well. Although I, I confess, I have not watched any of Carlos Corbran um, this season at Huddersfield. I watched a bit last season, uh, but I haven't watched any this season. So I couldn't really make any um, stylistic comparisons there. Nesto Valverde is the one that sort of sticks out a little bit. I mean, he's a manager who does have the capacity to get his teams playing high-pressing football, but he's also a manager who is very flexible and will have his teams playing in a in a mid-block or uh, a, as well, playing a, a little bit more zonally um, too. He's a very reactive manager. Um, he was coaching Barcelona most recently, although um, I had heard that he had retired. So um, his name on this list, I suppose, suggests that might not be the case, or they may try and pull him back out of retirement, which feels like a very Angus Kinnear, Victor Orta thing to do. Um, <laughs> in terms of why now, no idea. I guess th- there are rumblings about the, the the club going to take a little bit of a harder line in terms of their approach this summer. They're not going to just wait around for Bielsa to eventually sign a contract or not um again there's been there's been sort of rumblings in and in and around this season from uh, various people suggesting that the that there are worries about the the general approach that we've had uh, in terms of like squad building as well around Bielsa too so um I just think that they're probably just doing their due diligence and um and they will have had lists of managers replacements anyway um but uh, it, yeah, you are right. It's interesting that they've decided to leak three names and leak three names now. Um, I don't know if you guys have any takes on that. I don't necessarily. I mean, I think probably I agree with you that, that part of it is probably to try and smoke Bielsa out to making a decision earlier than he has done in previous seasons. But yeah, I am interested to to know what you think, Tom. Uh, and I'm also interested to know why you rolled your eyes when Carlos Cobran was mentioned, because I was watching <laughs> you and you did, and that was quite interesting. So what's your take on all this, Tom? The Carlos Cobran links, they just feel like it fits nicely. It's like he was here, he coached the under-23s, he's been under Bielsa. The succession kind of writes itself, even if it might not be the necessarily the right decision. If it's just, I'd, I've only watched a little bit of Huddersfield, so I don't. I'm, I, I just think it's a bit like almost too convenient. I'm not sure it's the right person that I would go for personally. In terms of the leaking of the names, I think it's just what you guys have said that um, we're just they're just sort of trying to make be able to make a decision earlier than he has done because especially this summer where we've kind of all said that the a little bit of a rebuild where quite a few signings need to come in it makes sense to get a manager in as soon as possible so they can oversee that process yeah we all know that how much power Bielsa holds at Leeds United and I wonder whether there's a kind of a bit of an attempt to try and rebalance that a little bit um, and to try and take back some of the sort of managerial control and, and control some of the narrative too so I think it's interesting we'll see how it how it plays out over the over the next few months 
Um, this is going to be a double header episode, so we'll be um, reviewing the Villa away game and previewing the Everton game. And as we've done in the past, John is going to lead on the review part and I'm going to lead on the preview part. So without any further ado, I'm going to hand you over to my esteemed friend and colleague, John, and he will lead us through the review. And obviously the game that we're reviewing is a 3-3 draw away against Aston Villa. Um, as we usually do, what I've done is I've got a sort of paired back review um, structure here. So we'll do the interrogation as we always do. Um, and we'll I've dotted in a few questions from listeners as well. So thank you for the people who've sent those in. And thank you for the to the guys who, who we're going to use. But we'll keep it nice and simple. Um, five questions, trying to get to the bottom of what happened in the game itself. Um, which was a very good performance and uh, very impressive to come back from 3-1 down. So uh, plenty of positives to talk about. Uh, we'll start off with question one and we'll go to you, Tom Alders. And how on earth do you begin to analyse a game like that? It's the, the, my main thought when answering this question is like, I can't remember who said it in our group chat, either today or last night, is that clearly there's a team of analysts at both Leeds and Villa and still these games just get drawn into these massive transitional battles where it feels like any sort of attempt to do tactics kind of gone out the window now I think that's being quite harsh but it was basically he kind of got the impression with the lineup that they went that Leeds went for that if you're going to play Click and Rodrigo you're just going to try and play transitional and there's nothing more to it really. We'd spent quite a lot of time in the preview podcast talking about how Villa were likely to be quite controlled, quite patient in their build-up. We're going to try and work their full-backs into advanced areas, um, how they were going to make sure that they covered spaces that so that we couldn't kind of spring on them in, in transition, um, that they were going to be very solid and difficult to break down. And actually what happened in the first half is that that, well, some of those things happened. Some of the things happened in terms of possession, in terms of the way that they, they tried to move us around. And some of that was as I expected it to be. But really, I think Tom's right. They, they were drawn somehow. And I think, I think the first goal that we scored spooked them because I actually felt that they were very much on top until we scored. That they look more likely to create chances, um, and 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 you know Melier had already made a really brilliant save in the first first minute and, and a half um, from a corner, and they were they looked like they might cut us open, um, but I think once we scored, they kind of I think there was maybe either a, a real urgency to try and get back into the game quickly, or they were just spooked, and we were we were able to kind of they left so much space uh, in in areas where i just didn't expect to see space appearing and it's the space in which rodrigo and click look good and and i th- i think that that in terms of like the tactical analysis point that tom makes i think we were in possession trying to run some slightly different routes from the ones that we normally run like we were looking for the ball between the left back and the left center back and trying to make trying to hit a diagonal run by the striker across the centre-backs. Um, so that's not something that you normally associate with us. And it felt a bit like we were trying to play to um, Dan James' strength when he plays in that striking position, rather than expecting him to do the same things that Patrick Manford does, which I think is quite quite clever and, and logical and wise. But I think really what happened is that, that we drew them into our game in the first half by scoring, so changing the game state. They had to come out and left spaces. Um, and then... We, once they'd equalised, we didn't read any of the danger signs that, that, were, that had been there throughout the game and we continued to attack with seven players and leave three back. And, and, and really that's kind of 
manna from heaven for somebody like Philip Coutinho, who, you know, for for whatever his faults may be as a player, he's elite at picking, at finding space, at picking up the ball, at picking clever passes. And they, yeah, yeah, we we really played into their hands in that period in which they scored their three goals. And then the second half was just a complete mirror image. It was actually quite boring. I thought there was just not a lot really went on. Um, and you know, we managed to get a goal and create a couple of couple of reasonable chances or a couple of re- reasonable situations. Um, but the, it felt to me that both managers had gone in at half time and gone, we're not having that again. And, and really kind of made sure that both of their teams didn't expose themselves in the way that they had in the first half, but at both of their expense to their attacking power. Um, so that's kind of what my analysis of it as, a, as an overall piece would be. It's funny, isn't it? Because we always talk about, our oh, teams don't want to get drawn into these uh, transitional battles with, with Leeds. And my impression was that actually in that first half, I think we played well in that first half. Um, we played fine in that first half for sure. Um, but when you actually balance it off, I think that transitional game suited them as much as it suited us. And I, I think off, off the back of that, it, it was a sort of weird scenario because I feel as though we spend our whole time on here being like, this is what Bielsa is wanting us to do. But actually, I, I felt as though on the balance of it, like I preferred what what happened in the second half once we once we sort of solided up a little bit. I felt, I felt in the first half, like, like you said, they came out strong. We nicked a goal they panicked a bit and then it became quite transitional and then they scored those those three goals in in fairly quick succession in the final 15 minutes of the first half um and then in the second half i think they were sit- they were just sitting deeper and just not going to commit to to going forward and and we were sort of yeah i mean the, the big chances we created in the second half were from set pieces basically um i think there was there was maybe one or two uh, decent decent build up chances but other than that it was it was very stodgy lots of injuries lots of fouls lots of um yeah turnovers of possession um and 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 that's sort of how it how it ended but um i, I don't know it, yeah I, I don't know what i really take away from it because it, it feels to me like i say a lot on this podcast that we are very dependent on the way that the opposition set up in the way that we we are suited or not but i kind of part of me kind of thinks you know if if villa had came out in the second half and and been just as transitional as they had in the first half i'm not entirely sure that it wouldn't have ended up being a bloodbath no i i think you're right but i think part of that is because they they had one player in that advanced area who could really pick the unpick the lock in a way that we didn't necessarily have in our advanced area so i think then it became a battle of who's got the most elite attacking talent uh, in in those moments, and because they had Coutinho, and because they had Ramsey, who was prepared to bomb forward, um, and you know, when Diaz a really class player, and Watkins' movement is really good, they they were always going to create chances. And I think I think you're right. Like I think I said at half time that I expected it to finish five three to Villa or something like that if it was going to carry on the way it would in the first half. And you know, th- there is there is a lot of appeal in that because obviously to the neutral, and we're not neutrals, but. But to the neutral, that's an entertaining, exciting game. But to us, it just like it looks like we're really playing into Villa's hands in a lot of ways, whilst also causing them a lot of problems. Let's move on to question two then. So you've already mentioned, um, we've already mentioned the the decision to drop for sure. Tom mentioned it before. We had a question from Udav, friend of the podcast, who said, um, "I said to some people that if Forshaw played, we wouldn't have attacked as well as we did due to how Bielsa decided our midfielders would attack. The others disagree, but what what do you think?" Um, yeah, we'll go start with you on this one, Darren. Then, what what do you make of that decision to drop uh, in scare quotes Forshaw? So I I wasn't happy with the decision before the game because I I kind of feel like when we've got Forshaw in the team, we've got at least some semblance of a chance of 
at least sort of hinting towards some sort of control of of, of the game and that he does support our build-up through the thirds in, in a way that, that none of the others are really um, as, as able to do or as intelligently. Um, I'm not sure I agree with, with Udaf here. I, I think that Forshaw is, whilst he isn't, um, as good in those very advanced areas as Click or Rodrigo and doesn't make the same sort of runs. I think he does have an intelligence to, to the way that he picks passes, which does facilitate more intelligent build-up than we're, we're kind of quite blunt. We're, we're a bit of a blunt instrument at the moment and and um, and, and, and that sounds like it's an insult. It's not intended to be, but, but, we, are, but we do um, kind of... You know, try get the ball into the final third as quickly as we can, and then and then hope that the rotations and interchanges of movement in that final third help us to create a chance. Whereas I think Forshaw's a bit more considered from the off. Um, so so my view is that we w- we might not have created as many chaotic opportunities, and we might not have created as much panic in the Villa back four, but we may have been able to um, sort of manipulate and, and structure our attacks a little bit more effectively. So I think that's that's where I fall on it. I don't know what you guys think. I was actually talking to Udav on Twitter about this last night. I'm inclined to agree with this, that I've, what I noticed was that in the way that you've mentioned before, John, how we kind of trying to hit those gaps between the back line when we cut a ball back, we were trying to do that, but like, earlier in the play so like we were attacking those gaps and the full backs were putting that that um putting that ball in and i think that that's not a run that you kind of see for sure but you, you don't see for sure make that run but it's it's something that plays to click and rodrigo's strengths and it kind of was it helped us attack as well as we did last night i definitely agree that we're more controlled and we could sort of build up a bit better with for sure in play but i just think it our i think our attack even though it was like like you say second half more from xg more from sort of not not building up but like opportunistic stuff I just think it is we did attack better last night so I am more in, inclined to agree with it I think because we kind of it was aiming to go for that transitional style of play it's kind of like you said Darren that it makes Dan James look better and it's almost can you you, you probably can but it's, it's going to be trying to find some balance between can you go for that transitional style of play and not have for sure works I think I think you can but I think it's just a balance that they'll probably need to find over the next couple of weeks if they're going to go with this I'm not sure I agree that Forshaw never makes those runs though, because I think he does. I think he does make those runs. He doesn't make them as often as Click and, and Rodrigo does, but I think he does. You know, when it when it's the right time, he does get into those those spaces. And you know, you think about the assist that he got for uh, for Jack Harrison for the in, at West Ham. You, you think about the like, particularly in the, in the early part of that Bielsa season, the first second Bielsa season, he was the more advanced player rather than Click very often getting into those gaps and spaces. So I think he's very capable of making those those sort of runs I just think he'd be a bit more judicious about when he did it yeah that's fair I mean the fact of the matter is right if you're going to play for sure and then you're going to be playing with a defensive midfielder then you're you are reducing the amount of players who can directly create um and and that that is then where the the argument falls down right is is going to be what side of the fence are you do you think we are going to create more chances by having someone who indirectly influences the creation and, and the patterns of play or are we going to be benefited more by someone who directly affects that uh, and I think that the 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 long and short of this game was that Bielsa was like we can come out against Villa and cause problems for them so we'll play our more directly attacking players in those eight positions um, where I where I sort of come down on this is that well you know we did that in the first half and we came out 3-1 down at half well we were about to come out 3-1 down at half time um but for that but that second goal 
And then would you, if we'd have not scored that second goal, would we have come out of that and been like, you know, it was a good decision to play um, Rodrigo and Click as the two midfielders? I think people probably would have said no. And and, and so I think a lot of this, the, the way that you fall on this argument is just very much a narrative one because had events unfolded differently, then we would have probably be, be saying, we're probably having a, a negative conversation about this being like, why does Bielsa go with Rodrigo and Click in midfield in these games? Um, so I don't know if that changes anything here really. Only that, as you as you are very fond of saying, that our ability to create chances often depends on opposition build-up. And we were only able to play that very transitional game yesterday because Villa were so open. And as soon as they closed the door, we weren't able to do it anymore. So um, to me, that in, that indicates that, un, that, that the, the value of Click and Rodrigo playing together, and they both played well, this is not an, an indictment on either player, but the, but, the, but the value of playing those two players is only there when you get defences who are as open as Newcastle were in the first half, as, as Villa were in the first half yesterday. So I think overall I'd, I'd like to see us prioritise a little bit more control and and just reduce the, the, the flood of numbers that we get into the box a little bit. Yeah, I suppose the the the, the thing is is that we could have played Forshaw and, and Click slash Rodrigo and it could have been a very sloggy game that we may be nicked or, or, or a header from a corner like we did. And then you, you come out with the 1-0 victory. And I suppose that's, I mean, all of this is just counterfactual. But um, my, my point is simply that I think that we were very close to coming out of this game with a more disappointing result. And I think we would be having a completely different conversation about the structure of the midfield had that been the case. So I just thought it was maybe worth throwing that in there. Let's move on to question three, because um, I think we could talk about this all day long. But um, let's talk about man marking, Josh Hobbs's favourite aspect of Leeds United. Um, the man marking was obviously an issue in the first half. We saw um, Matez Click unable to track Jacob Ramsey a lot of the time. Uh, and we saw Bielsa trying to sort this out in the second half by switching Cock and Click uh, and then marking responsibilities over. Um, how much do you put this down as the reason why the two halves were so different, Tom? For me, I don't. it wasn't more that we did that was the reason that Villa didn't attack well in the second half. I think it was more that they came out and tried to be a bit a bit more solid. Um, like we've said previously, that I think Gerard just he didn't want to play into that transitional game as much second half. So I think yeah, I don't I don't even because I don't did Villa not have a shot in the second half of our or they definitely did mid, have shots or a um, shot on target or something like that. They, they probably didn't have a shot on target. No, they yeah. had they did create a few chances. I because I, someone mentioned that to me. In um in the aftermath of the game, and I, when I watched the game back, I was keeping an eye out. And um, for example, uh, Coutinho took that shot, which basically injured his knee. Um, for example, so it's, it, they were they were generating chances. They just none of them really fell for them. Yeah, I just I think it was more that they were less attacking, trying to be a bit more solid second half, rather than the man marking be a key difference that meant that they weren't attacking as well. Yeah, I I agree with that, and I also think we weren't committing. As many as many bodies forward as we did in the first half, either. So I think I think I think yeah, I would put that down more to the um, more to those things rather than the man marking. Although I think the man marking was brutally exposed at times in the first half, uh, and very often we left ourselves three on three or four on three in Villa's advantage, and it was a it was a massive massive issue. So I think it was it was more about the the overall control of the team rather than about who was marking who. I didn't really understand why we started out the other way around because Jacob Ramsey is always the player who's getting forward for, for Villa from the midfield three. Um, and John McGinn's basically almost playing as a, a sort of fill-in fullback at times. Uh, a lot of the, I mean, could you, can you think of any times when McGinn got forward that far? That Not much? Really. No. So no. it no. seemed weird to me that, that Robin Koch was sort of nominally following McGinn 
in that respect. It felt that felt odd to me. Um, and and obviously when they switched it around, then obviously Cock was just able to to keep his his player a little bit more. It did mean that at times Cock did have to track his man out into into the fullback area, but that's not necessarily an issue. I I don't particularly think so. Uh, in terms of a man marking system, and I think this is. Something that's worth saying is that a man marking system, you don't really worry about space. You apart from in those two zones, the up front and and, and at the back, mm. the rest of the time you're simply thinking, Am I close to my man? And if you are, that's fine. Because if if someone goes into that space, you hope that, that the, the player tracks them. Now obviously sometimes you end up with situations like Luke Hayling yesterday for their second goal where he had to sort of drop back track Coutinho and Coutinho was able to roll him quite easily. But in terms of like what we talk about a lot with uh, central midfield being open, um, that's just people naturally think in zonal ways and, and we just don't play that way. But um, that's just a, a bit of a, 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 a here end of the lesson. But um, does anyone else have anything else they want to say about man marking or should we just move on? No, I'm sure we'll get other opportunities to talk about man marking <laughs> in future weeks. <laughs> okay, question four is from Chooksbury White. He said, you wanted control, you wanted chance creation. Did you get it today, Darren? Well, I don't think we got much control. Um, but, uh, I mean, there was a bit more control in the second half, so I, d- I don't think we got that. Um, chance creation, I don't... I, <laughs> there were chances, um, and I think... As I said in the group chat earlier, I do think we got into more dangerous areas than we have done uh, at other times. Um, But the chances, yeah, I'm struggling to remember um, like where I thought, oh, we've really carved them open here and made a great chance for for one of our players through a bit of uh, either a bit of individual skill or through like really great build up. And it may very well be that I'm forgetting one or two or something like that. I think before Dan James's header. I think the actual build-up there was quite good. I know that the the goal didn't come from that, but I think the build-up there was good. That's yeah. what, and, and that's kind of what I'm referring to, Tom, that I think we, we did get into some really good areas, but then once that ball came, it, I mean, Rodrigo's got, gotten into a really great position, but is his ball really the right one? Is it? I mean, the, it's cut out and then sort of bobbles and then somehow a six-foot-five central defender fails to get his head on it and lets, lets Dan James accidentally head it in. So I'm not, I'm not really sure that that, that sort of counts in the same way as as you, t- but but yeah. So I th- we we I mean the XG suggests that there were chances. It's just my my question is how um, structured in terms of the build up we were in terms of creating them. But that's better than earlier in the season when we just weren't creating any chances at all. So I'll I'll take that as a I'll take that as as some sort of progress. Um, yeah. So but control almost certainly not. Yeah, it's like I would agree with that. I think there was there was chances, but chance creation. Not, not the, like the proper build up or, um, yeah, the full build up to create chances like we were sort of in previous previous seasons. I think when when we think of control, I know we we always sort of talk about this. Um, that the the start of Bielsa's second season, that's kind of what we want for, and it just it's nothing like that at all. But I think the reason with that is can can you play that style and play Dan James up front? And I don't think you can do them both effectively because I think it just as Jack Dan James looked good last night because of the way we played. But if you play that way, does he look good? I think it it doesn't. So whilst you can have control, I don't think you can make the chances for when you've got a striker, a striker in brackets like uh, Dan James. Yeah, and I suppose for me as well, some of this question comes down to how good a chance you consider 
the 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 one like Dan James scored the first goal from last night. How good a chance you consider that to be? Because like we made a lot of chances like that where where there is an opportunity to have a strike, and it probably is is he's got himself a little bit freer than other players did. But like obviously, as per xG, it's a very low percentage outcome. So, but then again, you would expect a player playing at his level to get a to get a strike on target from that sort of position and and if you do that you've always got a chance of it going in so i think i think there is, there is a, a slight question there about about that i mean my my view is that if he gets that chance you know yeah it, it's not it's not a chance that he's going to score from very regularly um but we did make a lot of as we've done all season a lot of sort of half opportunities like that and it's whether they go in or not that leads to it, whether it looks like we've had a good attacking performance or not we should say something positive about Dan James because uh, the risk <laughs> the risk is that we don't ever say anything positive when something positive is due. And I did promise my good friend Stefan Jones that I would say that his his finish was very good. It was a lovely it finish. Um, yeah. As you're saying, Darren, though it's 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 a 0.05 xG chance. So you're talking what one one in twenty finish uh, according to now that 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 figure is got from all of the comparative situation so every time a shot has been taken from that area in a sample size of however many seasons in the top five leagues you would expect it to go in one in 20 types um so yeah it's um it's not a particularly likely chance i think he was lucky that concert defended it badly and um but he still finished it really well into into the bottom corner and obviously i think in the first 25 minutes dan james was really good uh, and i think credit where credit is due there um I guess the issue that we would want to talk about is whether or not we think these sorts of things are repeatable. Um, that's what that's what I talk about a lot because I felt as though, you know, in the West Ham game, everything went our way and we won that game. It felt like in the Villa game, lots of things went our way and we got a result out of that game. And I think that's what I want to start seeing is I want to see us um, taking control of games in, some, in terms of creating more and better chances than the opposition and, and that that is always a better yardstick for whether or not you're going to be winning more games than you're losing. And um, so, yeah, yesterday I thought was was a good game. We played really well. We did really well to get back into it um, when we when we went two down um, because I think Villa of the two teams were the teams the team who um, actually dropped their heads after the first goal and then also after in the second half when they were getting a little bit nervous about only being a goal up. So I think plenty of positives to take away there. But I still think there's a lot of stuff to be done in terms of actually generating more more repeatable chances to be honest I agree and I also just want to echo you know that and and that and I don't mean this in a in a mealy mouth way or Dan James did play well last night and I think it is important that we say that when when it happens because I know that we, we that may not always be something that people <laughs> like associate us with so yeah no of course Equally, I think from the other direction, there's a lot of people who seem to think that, that that's just a sign that we're going to see that from Dan James week in, week out. And I think it's important to be aware of the fact that he has his limitations in that position. And uh, I think that, you know, there's not going to be, there are going to be other games where we're going to have the usual sort of inability to really generate much as well. So, Well, well, the game suited him and he didn't have to hold the ball up and bring other people into play. And we, he didn't have many times when we got to the byline and he had to choose a run to make, which are the things which are really associating with him struggling in that. Role. Anyway, at the risk of undoing all of our good work, I'm going to move us on to the next question, um, which is question five. We talked a lot about Rafinha in the build-up to this game, suggesting it could be a game where he didn't see much joy. What did we make of Rafinha? I mean, everyone knows that Rafinha had a poor game last night. Do we make... I think the, the the go-to sort of narrative is always going to be, oh, well, he's just had an international break where he's been to playing two games in a different time zone and had to fly back and reacclimatize, and he's just got engaged or whatever so you know lots going on in his life which is obviously true and and will impact him he is a human being after all but 
to what extent did we think that his game was actually impacted by the way that, that Villa played as well, Darren? Yeah, very much so. I um, d- They did keep him in, in our deeper areas for a lot of the game. He wasn't, he didn't pop up in, in, in our most attacking areas very often. Um, I thought they, they, they did try to press us in wide areas and that, that was always going to be, going to be a problem. I suppose one of the upsides of that was that it meant that Rodrigo had a bit more space to operate in and that was, that was really good to see. But yeah, I think, I think, I think then Villa did make sure that Rafinha wasn't able to influence the game as much as he ordinarily would. But I also do think that on the times that he did have to, to, to try and influence it, he didn't execute the things well in in the moment so overall i think it, it was it was a poor performance but i think it was at least largely due to to the way that villa set up yeah i'd agree with that i think they did press him in wide areas not that wasn't the pro like we cited in the preview that that would be the issue and whilst it was it wasn't one of the main factors i think he, like, he was kind of dragged away by dinier a bit as well but i think it, i would say that you you've got to think that traveling to Brazil, playing those internationals, is going to have an effect on him. He also picked up a knock, and you'd you'd hope that that's not a factor as well. But it, it'll be something you'll be able to tell after Saturday, won't you? If it's a a one off or if it's a genuine problem. But yeah, I think I think it should be fine. You just hope it's a one off. Yeah, it was interesting. I thought that actually in the first half, Rodrigo was doing a lot of attacking down that wing. Uh, they were, we were pushing him quite far across into those spaces and the few chances that we had came from either Ailing or Rodrigo carrying the ball rather than Rafinha and whether or not that was just a decision that was made because we anticipated that they were going to try and keep Rafinha quiet um, I don't know but um, I just think that's another thing worth pointing out but I think that brings us to the end of the interrogation and the end of, uh, of the review of the Villa game so back over to you Darren. Okay, actually, John, it's back over to you because this week John uh, spoke to Joe Parker from Toffee Analysis and Between the Posts about the fun of a relegation battle, about the souring properties of milk, and he also implies that Frank Lampard has read a book. So, Joel, hi, how are you? Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. How are, uh, well, I mean, we've seen much better than days, but I how how are uh, things looking at Leeds at the moment? I haven't actually watched them in quite some time, so... Forgive me if I'm a little rusty on that part. Things haven't been great this season, so we can commiserate together in this in this podcast, no doubt. Exactly. My first relegation experience. I'm quite looking forward to it, I guess. So you definitely think that this is a, a relegation potential? Yeah, I, I think that's the main talking point going into this podcast that a lot of your supporters are kind of wondering, are Everton that bad? And the answer is yes, we are 100%. <laughs> that bad yeah and we should say that we are recording this immediately after the 3-1 loss to Newcastle yes um, which did very little to make us think that New- uh, that Everton are in fact not bad so um, yeah things have obviously taken a turn since we last spoke when we last spoke you had a different manager you mm-hmm. had quite a few different players a different squad and there's even stuff going on higher up right that's, that's changed since we last yeah. spoke so how frustrating is it to be an Everton fan these days it's extremely frustrating. We spent, you know, a quarter of a billion pounds in the last half of a decade. And um, that has essentially led us to enjoying a relegation battle, which is obviously not the aims of spending half a billion pounds. But um, I, the last time I was on the podcast, I said something among the lines of, uh, I thought Benitez had a, had a good approach for Everton. Um, that statement aged like milk 
very, very quickly. <laughs> I think um, the signs were very, very clear by October time that uh, this was not really going to plan out unless there was drastic change. And when situations uh, begin to turn this bad, it's the politics off the field that have also taken the spotlight. You know, we've had the director of football essentially sacked i guess i guess well we don't really know but he uh, marcel brands left in quite dodgy circumstances um the board appear utterly tone deaf you know we've we've been in this uh, situation before 2018 was very very similar 2017 was very very similar um and uh it seems like everton are going through the same mistakes all over again and and even in this appointment, which will break down a little bit more, but you know we've uh, we essentially announced Frank Lampard on deadline day rather than give a manager at, at least a a good couple of weeks of a transfer window to try and shape something. So yeah, it's it's very very frustrating as a Everton supporter in this current climate. You've mentioned Frank Lampard, so we should start off there. What are your thoughts on Frank Lampard uh, as an appointment and what have you made of him since he's arrived? Obviously, it's not been that long. We've not had too much uh, to to sort of analyse from him, but what have you made of, of the whole Frank Lampard as Everton manager? Yeah, it's it's a very curious, curious appointment. I quite liked Lampard in his, his first season at Chelsea. I thought that he was quite adaptive. He, he switched formation quite a lot and uh, when things weren't going well for Chelsea he wasn't too afraid to to change it and um, one thing that uh, one stat that was brought up when he was appointed that I was really really surprised about is that in terms of expected points uh, that Chelsea team was only second behind Man City in that season which is is something that uh, not only had I completely forgot about but was also completely surprised about but uh, the second season Things were a lot different for him. You know, he was a lot less adaptive. It was a very top-heavy four-three-three uh, that Chelsea were using, and um, yeah, that that Chelsea team was clearly uh, kneecapped by not being entirely well coached. And you saw the difference of what a top-quality coach can bring. But it's extremely different circumstances, and and the way that the uh, the Lampard appointment kind of phased was kind of put into place was very, very bizarre. We had some weird, weird interview with uh, Vito Piera, who was also in the running for the job and was interviewed by Sky Sports in between that process. So uh, if you want an indication of just how how bizarre and unclear things are at Everton, that's, that's a real major indicator. But yeah, I think that when you head from a Benitez style of manager to a Lampard one, it's it's yeah, it's very curious. I'm not sure whether I'm I'm over the moon or just just I'm not I'm not sure to be honest with you. <laughs> it's very confusing. Let's talk a little bit about the the transfer activity. As you've, obviously, you've 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 had a fair bit of activity through January, but as you as you mentioned. Marcel Brands was was moved on, um, which is not an ideal context for some of this stuff to be happening. Um, so, what did you make of the transfer activity in January? Were you were you happy with the sorts of players that were brought in? It did seem as though they're bringing in younger players for for uh, positions that that would 
um, probably suit the way that Lampard's been playing since he arrived? Yeah, uh, what I find quite weird is that, yes, we have that there has been a couple of younger players that have come in, but uh, once again, Everton's recruitment process has been very, very scattergun. And we've also seen that within this window. Uh, players like Patterson and Milenko, yes, they were badly, so badly needed. We, How we haven't brought in a right back over the last three or four years is is beyond me personally. But um, what I find really, really bizarre about those transfers is that those are the players that were allegedly scouted by Marcel Brands and Marcel Brands wanted to bring in the club, yet Brands was sacked before Christmas. So once again, another idea of just how messy things are at the moment. Um, El Ghazi also came in, who we haven't seen in, in an Everton shirt yet. And it, I can't really berate the uh, the player too much, but there were heavy links between uh, Moshiri and, and super agents that were kind of involved in this deal as well, which just makes this this loan move even more bizarre. Um, Benitez was still manager at the time, apparently that he didn't really, he wasn't really looking for him, which is fair enough. But you know, it's also Benitez at Everton, so I digress. But and then we end up with Deli Ali and Donny Van der Beek, um, two players that were promised for Lampard as as he came in, which um, are infinitely better players than what we've signed but how you accommodate both of them in the same structure in the same team is going to be extremely difficult so how are you feeling about the rest of the season now then you've already mentioned that it's very much a relegation battle on your hands um do you think that it will all be okay in the end do you think that with time Lampard will sort this this team out into something resembling a, a functional Premier League team. As we've seen Ed, Eddie Howe do something like that in the last few months. So do you have a hope that the same th- sort of thing is going to happen with Lampard? There is a hope there because amongst the, the rubbish, there is a few gems that Everton do have in this team. Um, whether they're fit enough and available is is the biggest kind of biggest kind of indicator of how it's going to go. Personally, I'm nervous as hell for it. Uh, as a as an Everton fan, as a 21 year old Everton fan, I haven't experienced anything like this. I wasn't. Uh, I was fortunate enough not to experience Everton in the 90s. But from what my dad tells me, they were pretty pretty bad times, and <laughs> he's telling me this is pretty bad times. So I, I'm taking I'm taking that with um, I'm taking that. But um, yeah, it's 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 difficult to know how it's going to go in in terms of the underlying numbers that I've been looking at, you know, we're predicted to be safe, but we're far from, far from stable. We've lost to all the promoted clubs. We lost heavily tonight. And um, we saw after, after a, a okay half an hour against Newcastle, that the players reverted back into, into empty shells by after that point and Newcastle took control of the game and, fully deserve their win. Let's talk about the tactics under Frank Lampard. As, as I said before, we obviously don't really have much of a body of literature to analyse when it when it comes to seeing how he's going to set up this Everton team. But what have you made of what you've seen so far? It's a pretty, it's a pretty interesting one. Um, I think everyone was kind of anticipating that 4-3-3 to be implemented here, but he's actually gone for a 3-4-3 formation. Um, 
as I said, it's a bit of a surprise, but you know, this shape can inspire a lot of natural patterns and combinations to form. And there have been elements of that with Damari Gray and Anthony Gordon continuously moving uh, to connect between the lines at the east of the forward line. And um, that's the biggest indicator for me at the moment is that a lot of Everton's progression has come through the centre, which is a bit of a surprise for a 3-4-3, which is, you know, there's a lot of players that are, are naturally in wider positions. But um, we've seen a lot, of, well, from that uh, the from the Brentford game at the weekend, we did see a lot of, Nice movements between Alan and Andre Gomez, but both reverted into their usual inconsistent phases against Newcastle. Um, another indicator is that the wingbacks are quite weird in possession. Um, I'm not just saying that because Townsend's played there tonight and we've also had, I think he's 34, Seamus Coleman. And I'm not quite sure he might be a bit older. He's 33, but, um, but he's definitely old, yeah. Ah, yes, definitely. And um, there's <laughs> never, other than... 13-14 season aside, hasn't really contributed consistently to the offensive forefront. But why I say it's really weird is that neither wingbacks really hold the width. They sort of have moments where they kind of weirdly drift inside. It's like Lampard read something out of a Guardiola textbook over the last year or so and thought, oh, sweet, I, can, I could do that here. And um, it's just really, really bizarre because... You know, there's no there's no pinning of the last line and they're not really providing much on the ball. So it is a biz- kind of bizarre thing to watch between phases. Um, off the ball, I mean, we looked great against Brentford. Um, there was a lot of uh, centre-back pressing that was involved that we haven't really seen for a long time at Everton. And Everton's shape matched very, very well against Brentford's, but... Like I've already mentioned, this really reverted back to uh, reverted back against Newcastle. Very shaky defending in the wider channels, very shaky defending inside the box. And after half an hour, well, I would say from the the start of the game, really, Everton were giving away a lot of the ball in possession. Um, I know Yerry Mina picked up an injury, but there was a lot of sloppy passes from him, which is very uncharacteristic from him at the back and um, Newcastle were allowed into a lot of semi-transitional moments within the game and um, like I say up until that that half hour mark I would say Everton had a little bit more of the control of the game but um, yeah this this soon fell apart which is a kind of the story of our season to be honest with you yeah interesting as well that I think you you had obviously a few injuries in the first half uh, and you were led to bring on a number of different players in different positions. Um, Deli Ali and Van der Beek were both brought on, as you mentioned. And I suppose the big question that everyone had when when these two players were brought in was, are these players not too similar? Um, how do you feel about slotting them firstly into a 3-4-3? Because it doesn't really feel as though any of the positions in a 3-4-3 really suit the two of them. Um, and, and obviously on the, on the night, Tonight, we saw Van der Beek playing a little bit deeper and Deli Ali playing as an outside forward, right? So what did you make of, of that whole experiment? Do you think that Lampard should change the structure to try and get both of those players in somehow in the future? I think it's extremely difficult to accommodate both, as we say. You know, both are excellent movers off the ball, a lot contribute a lot to the to final third of the field. And both have quite unique goals, uh, quite unique 
threats with inside the box. And um, as you say, that there's they're, they're far too similar. I know Van der Beek had a lot of time as a six in uh, at Ajax, which um, worked pretty well. But for Everton, with with the players around him, you know, you, you're not having Ajax style movements. You're having Everton style movements, which is not many movements at all, to be honest with you. So. Yeah, it's 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 extremely difficult to to shoehorn both of them. I think that I think that four three three must come in place at some point because in terms of Everton's midfield selection, you can argue that every single player can only really play in a three. Yet we've played a two all season, and it has not looked good at all. One thing I will say is that when Van der Beek came on, um. He kept the ball a lot better than what Alan and Gomez were doing for the first hour. So I think that can be a potential solution to that. But obviously the trade-off is, is that you don't have the movements in, in the final third, which is what makes him such a good player. So yeah, it's I I can't really see how Ali and Van der Beek are going to get consistent game time with each other on the same team. And then beyond that. In terms of the wider squad, which players do you think need to perform well from here on in if you're going to turn the season around? It's very easy to say all of them, but I'm not going to do that. But um, yeah, um, Calvert-Lewin really needs to get back into the team for us for the simple reason that we really lack goals. And um, also he spearheads the team a lot better than what Richarlison does. But um, after tonight especially when you're playing a back three. I think that the centre-backs are are very, very crucial to how this is going to go. Yerry Mina is still the club's best centre-back, but is very injury-prone. I don't know what the details are on his injury tonight, but um, if he's out for a long time, then we're going to struggle quite a lot. There, there are a decent young crop of centre-backs at the club, but... Uh, Michael Keane and Mason Holgate, they they desperately need to step up and get some form of organisation under a coach who's quite notorious for not really setting up his teams to defend crosses well. And uh, tonight we kind of saw a lot of composure kind of vanish in, in phases where St. Maximin was driving the ball forwards, driving the ball back inside. Everton looked really chaotic at, at times and that's been a real real consistent pattern throughout the season. Marcelo Bielsa has a pretty good record against Frank Lampard, at least in the championship. Um, obviously, there was a Chelsea win um, in the prim- first Premier League season back for Leeds. But how do you feel about the next iteration of the Lampard-Bielsa feud? It's a, it's an interesting feud considering the, the wild circumstances that Lampard has kind of stepped foot in. I mean, yeah, I, I, you two teams at Derby were, were pretty on par with each other fighting for promotion and then the next time you guys meet I'm pretty sure it was when Lampard was taking control of that team that won the Champions League half a year later without him so yeah as I say it's it's huge but I doubt lead scouts will be peering over the walls of Finch Farm regardless but anyway this is this is a huge game for for both teams and the, the circumstances that we're both kind of falling into as the season has progressed. Uh, in terms of the structure, do you think that, that Lampard will stick with that 3-4-3 against Leeds? I think yes. And the reason why I think yes is that I think that 
he knows that this Everton team needs to implement a new kind of structure. And there were a lot of a lot of good phases within that Brentford game um, that just wasn't on show against Newcastle, but encouraging signs nonetheless, especially in terms of playing the ball through the centre and, and actually moving the ball around pretty well. I mean, it wasn't exactly Man City, but, you know, I, I thought we was a lot cleaner. I thought that we, we kept the ball very well in that game and we made a good amount of progress within that game. But yeah, it's it's very difficult to see. As as I say, maybe we're going to see a bit more of an adaptive Lampard in, in the next three or four months. But um, for me, I think that 3-4-3, three, three, I think that's going to stick. And in ahead of the game, obviously, there's a few injuries that, that you picked up. Um, so how, how many players are you expecting to be out? Is it a big, big list for you? Yeah, quite a few. I think that's another thing that us and Leeds have had quite a lot of common in common with as the year's gone on. Just a lot of players that are just not available. So, yeah, Yeri Mina and Damari Gray both went off against Newcastle, which is two very, very, very big misses for Everton. Um, just a little bit on Gray is that out of the, the Benitez signings, he's been by far the best person because he can actually dribble forward. He can. He's very, very versatile, can play in kind of all three channels. And he's been a very crucial player in that Everton team. So for him to go out is a big blow for us. Um, Calvert-Lewin is still a major doubt, although he was on the bench for the game against Newcastle. Um, Milenko was out due to COVID. Um, So how that situation unfolds, considering his test was inconclusive, I guess we'll see. He might be available. He might not be. But we've also got uh, players like Ben Godfrey out, uh, Decoure, Fabian Delph, and Tom Davis. You know, that's a lot of midfield options that are missing and a lack of options for a very immobile midfield that is struggling at the moment. So, yeah, a hell of a lot of players that are out. Would you like to hazard a guess at a lineup? I guess I shall with <laughs> with the three four three. I think that um, to be honest, although that the the second half against Newcastle was was not fun to watch, um, I do kind of expect the kind of same players to 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 start that game as it finished. So um, Jordan Pickford in goal, Mason Holgate, Michael Keane, uh, Branthwaite came on, who is quite a nice two-footed centre-back. He's about six foot five, so it's quite interesting watch it, watching him play. But he is quite he is quite a nice player that I hope will get some more game time under Lampard. Um, Seamus Coleman as uh, as right wing back with, I mean, we've had Andros Townsend on the left. So whether he stays or uh, Milenko is available, I guess we'll see. Um, I'm kind of expecting... Uh, well, I want to. I want to expect Donny and Allen as the two sixes. I only say that because I think um, Gomez goes on very inconsistent phases, um, and that's been his Everton career in general. And I think, in terms of a team that man marks relentlessly, I think Donny's a much more safer choice next to Allen. And um, I'm expecting that front three to continue to be uh, Deli Ali, uh, Anthony Gordon, who's had a, a really nice season. Um, it's been great to see him being included in the team a lot more. And Richarlison up front. 
And I don't ever ask for predictions on this podcast, but I do ask where you expect the game to be won or lost. So I wonder how you would answer that question. <sighs> it's whether Everton can be settled in possession. I think that, um, there, as I said, there were good examples against Brentford where I thought we moved the ball very well. But um, how that translates against Leeds is going to be very interesting. I assume that you guys will want to control the ball a lot. Um, Everton need to look a lot more effective out of possession. Well, Joel, it's always a pleasure chatting to you. How's the best way for our listeners to catch what you're putting out? So you can follow me on Twitter, which is at Joelissimo. I also highly advise you to follow um, my Toffee Analysis account, which uh, includes a hell of a lot of gifted Everton writers that contribute a lot and we talk a lot on Twitter. So make sure you follow that and make sure you also follow Between the Posts. Um, We have a lot of articles, a lot of tactical match reports covering a lot of European games. So yeah, make sure you check that out as well. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you for having us. Cheers. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Okay, lots of interesting stuff in there. I think it's important to say that because... Lampard is so new in post that, that, that there are lots of unknown factors um, around this Everton team. So we'll, we'll do our best to try and imagine what, what Frank Lampard's idealised version of football might look like. Um, and we'll, we'll see how we get on. So, as, uh, Joel, as Joel said there, Everton are likely to play a 3-4-3, which means that Leeds will play a, play a 4-4-2, uh, which, which will be fun. So... Let's think about the team news. So Junior might be fit. I think uh, Bielsa said that Junior might be fit. Um, so Tom, if Bielsa, sorry, if Junior is fit, do you expect Bielsa to start him on Saturday? I would say so. Yes, I think you're going to prefer to have a specialised left back in that position rather than Stuart Dallas. Um, I'm going to skip on to the next question in the running order as well because it kind of follows on nicely. Uh, I think so. I think what will happen with Dallas is I think he'll move into midfield and I think he'll drop one of uh, Click or Cock because um, I think that kind of Dallas and then 
probably click works quite well as a two, I'd imagine. But I don't know if you guys would agree with that. Well, this is a question that I'm about to ask John. So how do you expect us to structure our midfield in terms of personnel for this game, John? Because it might be a game where the dedicated six isn't necessary because Villa, uh, Everton rather are going to play a two. So we've seen in the past that we sometimes don't play with a, a dedicated defensive midfielder. So who do you expect to be the two central midfielders and who, who would you like to see there? Yeah, it's a good question. I think the problem is going to be that at some point, we may end up with more of Bielsa's favourites available than you can squeeze into the team. <laughs> this is what I'm driving at. <laughs> which is, yeah, which is certainly a, an interesting one. Yeah, what do you do? That, I, I suppose the question is, what do you do with Robin Clark? If you don't want to have a defensive midfielder and you're going to play with two eights, one of whom drops in as a pivot and build up, then you probably go with, <laughs> uh, you probably go with Foreshaw and Click. Um, and I say that because I think that we may use Rodrigo up front. The problem is, is what I'm going to start pushing players around and we're going to end up doing the whole running order in one answer. So, um, but yeah, I, I suppose the issue then is what do you do with two forwards if you're pushing Rodrigo into one of them? Do you go with Rodrigo and James, which I think wouldn't work. Um, and I, I think the the other alternative to that is potentially moving Rafinha as a second striker as we've seen that happen in some games as well um, as a way of getting him closer to the goal uh, rather than having him mark a, um, a fullback who, who pushes forward so um, yeah I, I'm i not entirely sure how they will go with it but I, my my gut would be you want two midfielders who are going to um, are going to be defensively solid enough but also are going to be able to help you progress the ball well enough as well um, which makes me think that we sort of go well, I suppose you, you almost treat it as a three-man midfield, right? You say two eights and then a, and then a ten, a second striker in front of them. Yeah, I, for what it's worth, I agree. I think Forshaw and Click would be the two that I would choose for for that role on on Saturday. So, how do you see the the front the front line being uh, made up there, Tom? So we've got we've got wingers and strikers. Tell us who the wingers and strikers are going to be. It's going to be Harrison, James, uh, Rafinha, Rodrigo. Like John said, it just kind of how it's going to go up I think I think we, we probably will be James on the right Rafinha up front I feel like we've seen that before but I'm not I'm not entirely sure where um, and that would be my preferred version uh, preferred sort of iteration of that as well so you'd have Rafinha against the right well the left sided uh, centre back and then you sort of sit the other striker in between the other two centre backs yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. starting to touch on the tactical questions there John so um <laughs> I just love thinking about tactics, Darren. You know, I know, I know you do, and 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 we all love to hear you talk about them. So, um, in some respects, it is hard to talk about Everton's tactics with any degree of certainty. Um, and yeah, like we say, Lampard is very new in that job, and it's unlikely that he's got all of his idea across yet. Um, so, John, I'm going to come to you with this one. How do you expect Everton to play against us in terms of pressing? Will they try press high? Will they mid block? Will they funnel us wide? Because I watched the Newcastle game and I. I honestly couldn't work out what they were trying to do so what was your takeaway from it yeah I also watched that game and also don't have a huge idea about what it is that they they want to do um I'm just I'm just trying to think I mean there's been times when Lampard has done fairly good like off-ball stuff um and I think it that this is something which is maybe common from a lot for a lot of like former player managers who have now moved into into the, this the, this well sort of forefront of, of managerial um techniques in in the uk in particular i think of someone like 
Scott Parker as well, who's someone I think of in terms of on ball stuff, not particularly great, but then a lot of the stuff that he did off ball was actually was actually pretty decent. And um, yeah, someone like Mikel Arteta as well, someone who I don't necessarily think of as being a particularly brilliant on ball coach, but his off ball stuff is probably like up there amongst the best. Uh, in in the Premier League at the moment, so whether or not Lampard sorts this out, I don't know. Joel did mention that um, against Brentford, the the pressing and off ball stuff was quite good. I haven't watched that game, so I, I, unfortunately, so I couldn't tell you about that. So I'm just going to admit my ignorance on this one and say, um, yeah, I'm I'm not entirely sure. I suspect that they will mid block us um, in terms of yeah, in terms of they will wait. They'll allow us to have possession of the ball and. Obviously, that means that we're going to try and get it in wide areas, and so I suspect they'll just let us funnel it wide, as as you say. The big question will be like how how aggressive are they going to be in that mid block? Are they going to are they going to be situations where they can step up and do, and do a bit of a high press, which is something that actually Villa did a few times in the early part of the game uh, yesterday. I noticed there was a moment when Melier just played it straight out for a corner. Uh, trying to pass it to Urente, which um, I thought, oh, they're going to press us quite high, but then they didn't really seem to do it much after that. But um, yeah, it will, if they try and press us high, you know, you never know that they could cause us problems. But um, I suspect that they won't be, they just don't have enough time to have developed a decent pressing structure yet, I think. And it was a real mess against Newcastle. They looked like they were so easy to move around, and and you know normally when you you see a a four a, a three four three, you can at least you can it's very immediately apparent what their pressing pattern is going to be. But it just looked it just looked like a a real jumble sale. Um, Tom, have you got anything you wanted to add to this bit about how how you expect them to play against us? Because we've seen Lampard in the past come up against Leeds and try and try effectively match leads in terms of pressing intensity and things and I'm just wondering whether you think that's something that he might try given that it has brought him some joy in the past in the in the for example in the home game against Derby in the playoffs and in the Chelsea game yeah I think he kind of it took him what for three and a half games to sort of figure out that if you do that it can lead to success like that's what brought them success after about 40 minutes in the plus playoff second leg and he did that very well in the Chelsea game um the thing with that is that at Chelsea he had someone like Mason well at Derby as well he had someone like Mason Mount who is a great presser and I don't really feel like they have that at Everton to an extent so he could try that but I think he might play into our hands and I think it'll just make them quite easy to to move about a bit so I, I do. I kind of hope he does go for that because I think it'll play into our hands more than it'll uh, help Everton. And their squad is really shonky as well. They've got. We we talked a lot about old players, but you've got players like Allen and um, and and Gomez in the middle, neither of whom are particularly mobile. And then you you're talking like Andros Townsend and and Seamus Coleman as wing backs. It's just they are not mobile enough to be able to do a decent high press. I don't think. I agree. So where are the areas we're going to hurt them and get joy uh, against them on Saturday, Tom? Um, I think it's just if, if we can, more so if we can get through the wide areas, because I think they will try and target us there. I think then if we can get someone like Rafinha in a 1v1 situation with any one of their defenders, I think we should be able to get joy there, really. And John, they also looked very shaky in possession against Newcastle. It wasn't really clear again, like that some of their build-up felt quite stodgy and predictable and, and that it didn't, it didn't really hurt um, Newcastle a great deal. So... Uh, in terms of their deeper build-up, we should be able to get at them with with a press, shouldn't we? I think I think this is a game where we might where we might look like we're pressing quite effectively. Yeah, it's an interesting question because I think if anything, we didn't really look very aggressive in our press. 
and haven't really done all season. But I didn't think we pressed particularly aggressively against Villa, really. No, I agree. And I wonder how much of that is to do with the fact that if we are playing Rodrigo, you, you, you just have to dial down the press a little bit. And um, I feel as though my, maybe my opinion on Rodrigo in our team has changed a little bit this season simply because I don't think that we're getting our edge from our aggressive press anymore in the way that we were last season. So last season, I think he sort of broke the press quite a bit. This season, I just don't think we're quite so sharp and snappy and and, and I don't think we're quite so committed as well in, in high presses. Um, I think that a lot of our edge is coming from winning the ball back in, uh, in on maybe the boundary between the first and second third. Um, so our third and, and the midfield third. And then we're turning, we're turning the ball over and then, and then counter-attacking quite quickly from that situation. We did it a few times uh, in the game against Villa as well. Um, and I think we get we get away with it at the moment as well because I think a lot of the time we're doing that we're probably fouling the opposition, um, but referees are letting it go at the moment. So I think we should use that as a to our advantage. Um, but I think I think that's maybe what we'll see happening a little bit more than a high press against uh, Everton. I think we'll see us tr- just allowing them to sort of move the ball forward and then just trying to um, hit them hard in that in that sort of midfield um, area, win the ball back, and then you can just decompress from there and I think that's to be honest I think that's what we did best against Villa in terms of the, the chances we created and we we have created a lot of chances this season from from that approach so I, th- I think we've changed a lot since last season and I think um, I, th- I think I've just sort of because I'm someone who loves like the off-ball stuff so much and and it feels like we've gone from having a really sophisticated pressing system to being a little bit like a, a I don't know a bit of a sledgehammer uh i've maybe maybe let it go but i think it's 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 definitely a good way of of being able to kick start uh, counter-attacking movement so yeah it does it does feel quite that, that we like you say like we have changed there and that that press in the middle third has been much more effective particularly recently um tom what should we be aware of from a defensive point of view so where where are the threats that everton might hurt us with would it be their wing backs would it be, would it be their wingers where, where do you see them making chances against us they do have individuals more than anything. I think they've got uh, with Richarlison, obviously a good player. Calvert Lewin, if he's fit. Um, who else is there? Oh, Deli Ali, but again, you haven't seen much from him. But it's there somewhere. Uh, Van der Beek as well. So I think that if you give those players time, then they could cause you problems. But in terms of like tactics or anything I don't think it's going to be anything like that I just think it's going to be those individuals that worry me mm, that's fair excellent where will the game be won and lost John uh, I think the game will be won because Frank Lampard isn't a great manager and he hasn't had enough time anyway to work with this team to get them into any sort of situation to be able to beat us so I think we will uh, it will be a chaotic game and I think it will be chaotic in a way that suits us because his team just won't have the um, the structure and uh the automations and and you know the 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 routines to be able to hurt us in those counter-attacking moments that they have versus the ones that we have against them i i would probably agree with that tom you got anything where where's the game going to be won and lost i'd completely agree with that i think i just kind of sort of follow up from my my previous answer that individuals are going to win the game and i'm just going to hope that we're going to have more chances to do that than their players are Excellent. So Everton are going to lose because Frank Lampard, I think, is what we're, what we're basically coming to there. Um, I joke, of course. Um, excellent. Okay, good stuff. So that that brings us to the end of the preview um, section and the end of the podcast. So, John, what are you still working on your, your managerial um, 
ideas videos. Yes, I'm looking at Marcelo Gajardo at the moment. It will probably be probably won't be out for the next couple of weeks because I'm having to fit it in around the edge of other things. But yeah, I'm I'm I've been working on his pressings and out of out of possession stuff today. So um, yeah, basically halfway there on this video with with another couple of sections to do. So couple of weeks it'll be out for sure fantastic and i'm sure we'll resume some of our more normal video content uh next week after the after the everything i don't is hobsy planning to do a video about last night john i think we're both going to do something maybe next week which yeah. is touching on both games just because of the the uh, proximity of the two games to each other sure that makes sense Okay then team, we'll be back on Sunday with a review of the Everton match, but until then everybody, enjoy the game and have a great week. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.